I think there's been a theme in my research life that maybe I didn't perceive right away, and that was that how one thing, how one sign, or one piece of paper, or a napkin, or one photograph, um, which is what my final, my last journal was about, one thing opens up this door, and there's this whole story, there's this whole world behind it, and all you got to do is open the door, and there it is. And it's like, it's been waiting for you, you know. It happens all the time. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Howery, and welcome to the Ventura County Stars podcast, Never 30, where we look at timeless stories from the county's past. We called the podcast Never 30 because back when typesetters were part of the newspaper industry, reporters used to type a 30 at the end of a story. That let the typesetter know that there were no more pages, that the story was done. But there are some stories that have no ending, you can type to be continued or part two to come, but never 30. If you enjoy history, you're going to love these next two episodes of Never 30, where I interview Charles Johnson. He recently retired after 30 years as the director of the research library at the Museum of Ventura County. He's a natural storyteller, and he has a lot of stories to tell about Ventura County, about the projects he worked on, about the people he helped, and about his love of history. Let's start with this one. It's about the exhibit he curated in 2010 called History Unexpected, Surprises, Insights, and Revelations from the Research Library Collections. And all I did was I took 18 different things and I said, here's one thing and here's the story that explodes from behind this one thing. And I can remember one, I'll never forget it. We found a napkin, a napkin, a paper napkin from 1887 and it, the, the napkin said Bardsdale Picnickers and what it was was a napkin that was given out at a barbecue in a junket because the railroad had just arrived in 1887. A railroad arrives here in I think September of 87 and what are they doing? They're selling property because now people can get to the property so um, two areas that were uh, being highly touted at the time, one was um, Nordoff, which became Ojai, and, uh, and the other was Bardsdale, both with Thomas Bard behind them. To an extent, Bardsdale took Thomas Bard's name, he first U.S. senator from the area, and so they took this junket of people on the railroad up here, and then, and then um, since there was no railroad up into the hills yet, they had to, I think, take them by wagon. They brought all these picnickers up, they gave them a barbecue, and they tried to sell them property. And out of that barbecue, somehow, someway, this napkin makes it down. Well, we start researching this, and we turn out, we have a photograph of that barbecue of that day. And by we, I mean the Museum of Ventura County has a photograph of that barbecue. And then we start to find out, well, there was a lot of uh, problems with the sale of the property and who was representing it. And Thomas Bard wasn't especially happy with his name being used and the people that were actually touting it. He pulled out of the deal. There was all kinds of things. And like most history, and this occurs again and again and again, history is not clean, history is not symmetrical. And every time I start hearing stories, stories, histories that are too clean and too symmetrical, I'm always wary of it because the human condition just doesn't produce that kind of history. But anyway, so one napkin, one napkin, 
one street sign. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. There, there was another one, there was a manuscript. We had this manuscript, I remember when it came in, and it was a manuscript and it was, it was entitled um, A Mountain Ranch. It was a really boring title, blah, blah, blah. I remember when it came in, it was like a 30-page manuscript. So it was given to the cataloger. I had retired catalogers who helped me for many, many, 20 years, in fact. Um, and I gave it to them to catalog, and eventually it went on the shelf. I never noticed it. We have, there's a lot of material that would come in the museum research library, so it's, it's, easily, you know, it's easy to not stop at everything, although it was always tempting. Um, and this manuscript, I laid, I, I, it took me like 10 years to even look at it when it was on the shelf, this little thing, 28 pages, 32 pages, something like that. And it was written by a, a woman named Pauline Gaynor. Well, the mountain, it turned out, was Rincon Mountain. I wouldn't have called Rincon Mountain a mountain. I call it a large hill. But what the manuscript was about, and when I opened the manuscript, the manuscript had all these original photographs glued into it. The originals. And it turns out that Pauline Gaynor was born on that property, and their property today is where that flame is on the Rincon. And everybody knows that flame. It's, but it's this little tiny uh, s uh, sliver of property with no water, no electricity. So everybody that was out there in, in the early days, and, and her father was a homesteader. That means he got the property for nothing if he could improve it. No water. They, they dry farmed. He literally died behind the plow out there. And everybody was out there was that, that died or grew old, died trying to make a go of that property. Um, well, eventually, oil, it becomes associated with the oil industry. And a lot of the people became fabulously wealthy later on. But the people who actually homesteaded the property died trying to make a go of it. Pauline Gaynor is there before the coast road comes through. And the train, of course, the, again, the trains come through in 87. The train goes through. Her mother is the postmistress for the area. They have this big ring that the train goes by, and it catches the bag. And they end up being the ones who, everyone who lives in that area, and there aren't a lot, are all coming down to this little farmhouse, this little dirt farmhouse, to get their mail. Pauline Gaynor is sitting here and watching the whole thing happen. She goes out and she takes photographs when they trench for the Coast Highway. She, and it's the only photographs I've ever seen of this trench and these cypress pilings that they piled in, that they built on top of these cypress pilings, they built this wooden causeway. And lots of people know about this causeway. It was very famous. It didn't last very long. But she was there before it, and she would go into town. Now, that meant... Um, Carpinteria, because Ventura, they only went in a couple times yet because it was so hard to get to, by walking on the railroad tracks. Now, if you can imagine, 
And she said the local shoe match that were still there, and she knew a few, wouldn't walk on those tracks for whatever reason. This is all really good. I mean, so I opened up this 28-page manuscript, and it ends up being a journal because I am fascinated by this. Well, Pauline Gaynor later ends up getting a degree in education from UCLA. When she goes to Ventura High School, sometimes she takes the train. It stops and picks her up. You can't make this stuff up. So she goes in, she gets a degree. She, she finds out she has an affinity for education. She graduates from UCLA. She ends up in inner city education in the city of Inglewood. She ends up living and dying two miles from where I grew up. This is crazy stuff. And, but she ended up being very, very good with what we've, some people call challenged children because she was tougher than everybody else in the room. She'd already been there. You know, she'd seen horses die and shot, and she had to do all kinds of... So anyway, so I started looking through this thing, and she's taking photographs of the area to the, um, to the uh, uh, east of her... Uh, I forget what they called it, but it later became La Conchita. But there's no La Conchita there. It was a bean field. And so she, had, she took photographs from her donkey. There are photographs of her donkey through his ears. When she's riding up on this hill, shooting what becomes La Conchita and Muscle Shoals and all of that. That was her backyard. So this 128-page manuscript opens up this story to this fascinating woman who did amazing things with what she was given. And it, the whole story was sitting there just waiting to be opened and told. And this happened all the time. Charles loves the serendipity of historical research. I think there's 165 books that we got from the attic of the city of San Buenaventura. And I'll tell you one that's a zinger that might not sound really sexy until you start using it. One was the sewer map for 1883. So I noted we got the sewer map. Not two weeks later, John Foster, who's the archaeologist with Greenwood and Associates, who's working on the Top Hat site, right? And that's going to be in the news for a while because they're trying to figure out how to develop something that's so colossally historic, right? Much the same way that uh, Piranos, it re they represent the same kind of challenges. John Foster comes to me, he says, is there any way we can figure out, we just found something in the ground that's right next to a sewer line. Is there any way we can tell when that sewer line was laid? And I said, oh, I just got the sewer map. And it was in a book form, right? So I opened up and I said, that sewer was laid September of 1883. I'll tell you, there's one other thing that came out of the attic. It was in the law library at Santa Barbara. In the attic were these licenses from 1850 to 1875 or something like that. Now, we were part of you know, Santa Barbara County until 1873. And it was a book of licenses. And the licenses did two things. It was a liquor license, all the liquor licenses. But it was also interesting that this agency also collected all the licenses for when the circus came. The circus had to take out a license. So for anybody who was interested in that aspect of our culture, when the circus came to town, there it is. If somebody's doing an analysis of public entertainment, there wasn't very much spare time. The further back you go, the less spare time there was for individuals. I'm always looking at records and saying, how can that be used? How can that be used? And that was one I just thought, somebody can do it. That's a PhD in the making right there, when the circus came to town. I get, that's even a great title. 
And um, so I was really excited about that. Has anybody used that material? Not yet. They may not know about it until they hear this podcast. So researchers, listen up. And with that, let's take a short break. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Michelle Rogers, Consumer Experience Director for the Ventura County Star. If you love listening to great stories like I do, the Ventura Storytellers Project has an all-new season of great live storytelling events planned for 2019. With four shows scheduled in the 2019 calendar, new themes will include stories of love, adventure, family, and much more from people in the community, just like you, and at locations across Ventura County. Tickets and information about these live events are available now at storytellers.com Ventura. Each of our previous shows have sold out, so get your tickets in advance. You can also purchase supporter seating to ensure you have a spot at every one of our shows for the upcoming season. I hope you'll join us. Just visit Storytellers.com Ventura. Welcome back to the first of two episodes, where I'm interviewing Charles Johnson, who recently retired after 30 years as the Research Library Director at the Museum of Ventura County. In that job, he collected incredible tidbits of Ventura County history that led to some profound insights into how the county has evolved. Here's one example. If you're looking at something, say 1830, what's available to you, it's far different than what's available in 1851. It's completely different. It's as opposed to what's available to you in 1872 as opposed to 1874. And it crosses cultures, right? And it crosses cultures. One of the great finds, one of the great services, I think, that was done for this area was done by a guy named David Hill, recently passed away. And David Hill and another woman named Elaine O'Brien went into the city minutes, the city of San Buenaventura, and the city of San Buenaventura was established in 1866. Well, guess what? In 1866, the minutes are in Spanish. And if that doesn't tell you a whole bunch... And the court cases are in Spanish, depending upon the, the, the language of the sitting judge, right? By 1872, that's only six years later, it's primarily English. Between 1866 and 1872, it goes back and forth. If Fernando Tico is justice of the peace, the notes are in Spanish. What we learned in looking in those minutes, for instance, water was a huge problem at the time because the aqueduct system, the water transfer system was developed by the church. The aqueduct, that, of which there are still remnants of coming into the mission, was finished in 1815. By 1857 or 58, it had been destroyed by a flood. So it, but in the 1860s, the city fathers and mothers are working, working with the church to figure out how to get water down here, and they came up with a flume. There was a wooden flume that ran parallel to... Uh, Ventura Avenue, and I talked to a man uh, who's rec- who recently passed away who said that he was around in the teens. He said that when he was a young child and he was near lived where Petrocam now is, he said his mother actually tethered him to the house so he didn't fall in the flume. We don't have any photographs of this flume. It shows up in a couple of maps. So this oral history, this personal recollection is key. We'll close this episode with a project Charles worked on that ended up having a profound impact on not only the researcher, but on Charles himself. This gentleman came in more than once was the thing. And I think one visit was one or two years apart from the next visit. But 
he came in looking the worse for wear. He didn't look like he was outright homeless, but he was marginal. Maybe he was living in his car. But he was diligent, and he was really focused. But the first time he came in, he kept asking for things, but he didn't tell us what he was looking for. Now, I think that was our failing because we didn't, because we're supposed to. Always have that reference interview. How can I help you? Why are you here? Because we can help. It turned out we did, but later, two years later, one or two years later, he comes back in looking pretty much the same. And he comes back in and he's sort of doing the same repetitive request. And so that's when I asked him, I said, could I ask you, you know, what you're looking for? And he said, in all seriousness, I'm trying to figure out where I was in 1971. Well, being a child of the 60s, I completely understood that you can lose track of time, God knows. And so, and I said, well, okay, what about it? And he said, well, I lived in, I'm around here. I lived in this place and I can't find it. And I walk up and down the street and I'm looking and I don't find it. And I said, where are you walking? And he said, well, I'm walking within two or three blocks of here. I'm walking on both sides. I think it was on the south side of the street, but I can't find it. So some more questions and some more questions. And it's really not getting anywhere. So I thought I started asking him about, well, what was around it? What do you remember? I remember um, he said something and then he said bar. And I thought, maybe the Star Lounge has been here that long. So I said, was it the Star Lounge? And he said, yes, that sounds familiar. Okay, we have a block. So we started looking at the Star Lounge. We pulled up the Sanborn fire insurance maps. We pulled up the directories. We pulled up the phone books. And it turned out that there was a business downstairs, but upstairs was a residence in this one address across from the Star Lounge. So I walked down the street later, and I looked, and it was a pocket park. Well, what was there? It was a business with a residency in over. So we went back, opened up the directory, and there it was. And it was like the look on this guy's face. And we just gave him back that year. And he had the name and it was what he needed and it was what he wanted. And it was great. And it, it, I think it took a while before we realized, because he went away happy, photocopy of the director. When we realized what we had just done, we had filled in a block in this person's person. And that's no small thing. You know, and I, and what's amazing is like, you know, I've had thousands of people that I've helped since then, but I never forgot that moment because it was such a direct fulfillment of somebody's need, historical need, you know, and it wasn't uh, cerebral, you know, it was his heart, it was his life. And we were really proud, you know. Never 30 is a property of the Ventura County Star, a member of the USA Today Network. I'm your host, Andrea Howery. The show is co-produced by me and Anthony Placencia, who also serves as the show's technical director. The news director of the Ventura County Star is Darren Peshka. 
Our Consumer Experience Director is Michelle Rogers. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit Never 30 in the iTunes Store and leave a review. And don't forget to invite friends to listen. I would also like to invite our Ventura County listeners to support this podcast by signing up for a print or digital subscription to the Ventura County Star. Just visit subscribe.vcstar.com to see all our special offers. On the next episode of Never 30... We do ourselves a disservice if we think for a moment that we can get the whole picture by our, our, through our smart devices. It's just not going to happen. I've seen too many occasions. That napkin I talked about hasn't been digitized yet. Will it? At some point, of course. How many other stories are out there on a napkin or on a letterhead or even on a carved into a piece of wood that we don't know about? Especially in the field of history, as close as a student can get to the real thing, they're going to get more from it.